Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride this week is Will the Thrill. Hello. And TJ2, the deuce. Is that a can? Yeah, what, what is that? Are you mm. are you opening up salmon? <sighs> yeah. yeah it was, uh, <laughs> it, it's sardines. Oh, okay. A tiny, a tiny tin of mustard sardines. Right. <laughs> Pickled herring, yeah. It's certainly yeah. not a... It's certainly not a Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA. Which is a fine IPA. Yes, it is. Quite tasty. Oh, that's good. I mean, if that's what I was doing. Such as it is, I'm eating mustard sardines. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, how, how was your week, T? Oh, it was just lovely. How was yours? Uh, it was awful. It was terrible. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, it, uh, uh, so for anybody who's been a listener of this show for pretty much any amount of time know that my favorite show is the TV show Supernatural and how much I love the the actor Jensen Ackles and Jerry Padalecki and how, what an impact they've made on my life and the fact that I you know, interact with the cast on Twitter and other forms of social media and I've been to conventions. I actually won a Castiel lookalike contest while dressed like a T-Rex. Well, technically you tied. I tied with the dog. Yes. Um, and then I've met uh, Mark Shepard, who played Crowley on the show. Well, that show ended this week, and I have been in a deep depression. And then I called mom and told her how sad I was. And then she reminded me that my feelings were valid, you know, because this was a family. And uh, such a beautiful community has sprung up around this particular TV show. And I'll always have that community. But she did tell me about the time that I cried when Punky Brewster was canceled. And she, yeah. And she said, Soleil Moon Fry turned out just fine. <laughs> I was like... No, no. <laughs> yeah, life, life, life went on for Soleil Moon Fry. And um, what was her dad's name on there? Adopted? Harry? Henry? Henry or Harry? Henry? I think it was Henry. I, yeah, I, Soleil did fine. And so did Henry, I guess. And Punky Brewster was on for what four or five years, whereas not, actually not even very long. Yeah, about th- about three or four seasons, I think. Well, Supernatural was um, on for fifteen years. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, um, so but, like, but, but but we we just had a very interesting dynamic there. LD <laughs> says, "So how was your week? Great. How was yours? Terrible. And, and, and uh, yes, it was. It, not only was it terrible, then she then expounded in great detail about why. <laughs> <laughs> not not quite the the light back and forth i anticipated there no it was terrible I, forgot I, about you. I seriously spent maybe three hours crying after the show and friday i was super depressed and then 
about Saturday, I started to pick myself up and then I, I found my therapy, which is, you know, I opened up a candle store. So I've, I've that... never seen the show. Well, I prefer just the 10 of us. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> Old school TGIF, baby. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I, uh, can I mention something real quick? Cause it actually pertains to one of our recent episodes. Yes, please do. Did you see the the controversy on, on two fronts that broke out with the recent CMA awards? I did not. What happened? Okay, so the Country Music Association did their award ceremony last week, I think. In the last two weeks, they've done it. They did uh, on. Uh, they're one of the first award shows to actually do a live award show and not have it virtual this year. They were in. Now they weren't in a big auditorium like they normally are. It looked like they were in a club. People were spread out and all that stuff. But they apparently got in a little bit of a pissing match with the Associated Press about what they could take pictures of, who they could take pictures of, and stuff like that. And the AP essentially said, "Well, if you're going to try to dictate to us how we come and do our job, we're just not coming." So they did not. Oh. They they didn't. They they boycotted it and didn't cover it. The Associated Press. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there was that. But then during the course of the ceremony, they did uh, tributes to Charlie Daniels and Kenny Rogers and Mac Davis and Joe Diffie, as yeah. they should have, all, all four of whom have died in this year. Did not mention, did not mention John Prime. Whoa. Jerry Jeff Walker, Whoa. Billy Joe Shaver, or Harold Reed, just, just as a throw-in, by the way, from the Styler Brothers, who passed away. Seriously? So, yeah, they didn't mention them. So Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires turned in their CMA membership award cards over the slight. Wow. They turned in their cards and they said something along the lines of, you know, nobody at the CMA might care that we're doing this, but we cared an awful lot about our heroes. That is awesome. And um, Sturgill Simpson had a reaction. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll just let you go look up if, if you're interested. Go look at his Instagram. He absolutely pulled zero punches and gave zero dams about whose feelings he hurt, whose toes he stepped on, or anything. I think he also mm. withdrew his membership. I don't know if he is a member to start with. He very famously a few years ago put out an album that won a Grammy and was not nominated for a single CMA award. So during their awards broadcast, he busked outside the front door of the auditorium where they were having the award ceremony with his Grammy sitting on the ground next to him. That's funny. Wow. He's great. That, that there, there, there's some Waylon and some Cash and some Willie and that dude. And that's um, what the world needs a little but bit. But of course, we did, we did an episode recently on John Prine. So I, I found that interesting. And I saw an interview with Sturgill Simpson. John Prine left him his prized Porsche 911. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, willed it to him. Wow, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we, back shall to we get back to Moon? Yes, so this is part two of our um, Keith Moon episode, and it really takes two episodes <laughs> when you're dealing with Keith Moon. You could do an episode on just his offstage persona. I think that's mm-hmm. basically yeah. what this is. <laughs> that's the second half. Oh, yeah, yeah, because here's the thing. We talked a lot about how much he loved uh, the fine art of dropping cherry bombs into a toilet. <laughs> Of blowing up crappers, right. Yeah. yeah, but explosives weren't his only method of destruction. So he was super bored one day when he was in 1968. They had a stopover in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That is a hard thing to say. Yes, it is. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And uh, he bought an axe. <laughs> so he returned to his hotel room and proceeded to chop every piece of the furniture to splinters wow uh, he 
it was a, a level of destruction that hadn't been seen in a very long time. And I'm pretty sure never in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. But uh, someone asked why he did it. And he just said, I'm trying to keep keep myself out of trouble, mate. I like how that's but, keeping me out of trouble. <laughs> yes, how, how do you keep yourself out of trouble? By destroying property that doesn't belong to me. Well, okay, so... With this, an axe. <laughs> so this isn't like... This isn't like something that's rare, though. So he would just obliterate hotel rooms. And one of my personal favorite stories was that he would go into a hotel room and people were expecting him to completely destroy it. So what he would do is he would just go through the bed and find every screw in the bed (laughs) and unscrew it just enough to keep the bed together and look normal. But the next time somebody sat down on it or laid down on it, the, the thing would just completely the whole thing would It would just be completely destroyed. Like it yeah. was like they would just be on the floor all of a sudden. Th- then there's my personal favorite moon anecdote where apparently he stayed in a hotel and everything was fine. And the next morning he gets into the car with, you know, Pete and Roger. And apparently they start pulling away from the hotel when Keith goes, wait, stop, we have to go back. And they're like, what do you mean, Keith? He's like, we have to go back. So turn the car around, they go back. Keith goes back in, gets the key from the front desk, goes back up to his old room, takes the TV, pulls it off the, you know, thing it was resting on, and tosses it out the window and into the pool. At which point he returns to the car and says, oh, thank God. Okay, now we can go. Wow. (laughs) But see, that that brings to mind actually a quote from the John Bonham episode we did, where there was some, some friend a person I don't, and I don't remember who it was who knew Bonham and Moon who said that sometimes they felt like there was they were almost trying to live up to the the expectations people had for them to be wild right. and crazy that's that we're actually going to touch on that a little bit later that it wasn't that, that a lot of times that a lot of the stuff they were doing wasn't genuine it wasn't really them a lot of times they they felt like they had a reputation to live up to the both of them you know yeah and meanwhile, Neil Peart is reading Atlas Shrugged in his hotel room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, with all this tomfoolery, he did have a tendency to kind of take jokes a little bit too far. And one of them was that he was with Viv Stanchel, got together, and they decided that they just wanted to get as many people horrified by their actions as possible. So what they did was... They got a pair of Nazi uniforms. Oh, God. Shoot. And then wandered around London and found German bar owners and Jewish residents and just, uh, you know, tried to mingle with them in their costume. Now, this costume is going to come up later, but there are photos of him actually in the Nazi. And apparently it was a pretty darn good nazi uniform but this nazi uniform is actually going to come back later yeah, really? for several years didn't it oh yes that's, comes up well, a times oh my God. that's um yeah that's never a good idea <laughs> wearing nazi paraphernalia is n- not a good idea ever under right. any circumstance correct unless it's in a movie or tv show and that's about it that's- if it's a, if it's in the context of an acting role right uh, right that's one thing but but like never just, on- hey what hey wouldn't it be funny if i no 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 keith it really wouldn't yeah no it's not there, <laughs> there's nothing funny about it. like don't like don't do that 
Go blow yeah. up some toilets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go, go take an Axis Motel yeah, Rager. Yeah, Right. So on May 23rd, 1969, The Who released Tommy. Unlike I was saying last week, this was kind of like the first introduction for me for musicals. So I kind of have a, a soft spot for this particular album and film. Recording on the album began in September of 1968, but it took six months to complete as material needed to be arranged and re-recorded in the studio. And Tommy was acclaimed upon its release by critics who hailed it as a Who breakthrough. Now, the film Tommy came out six years later. And it was, it was like, for me, it was massive because you had people like Anne Margaret. You had Tina Turner. You had Elton John doing these, these massive, let me see if I can't pull up a cast list of, of Tommy. Oh, everybody's in it. Well, yeah, they, once they took it to, uh, was it Broadway? Yeah. Later, much later, Uncle Ernie was uh, played by a favorite of yours. And that is? Bill Collins. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for Christmas, I'm just going to shit in your stocking. Well, isn't this also, since we're talking about the cast, where Keith Moon became very close with L actor, the late Oliver Reed. We're, we're going to get yeah. to that. Oh, we're going to so, get to that? Okay. So hang on. The cast list for Tommy. And I, I want to say at one point, it was, I can't, the Acid Queen at some point was, mm, I, and I don't remember if it's the movie or the, the live version of it, but it was Patty LaBelle. Yeah, they wanted they wanted David Bowie actually. Oh wow. Yeah, so for the cast list, it's Oliver Reed, Anne Margaret, Roger Daltrey, Elton John, Eric Clapton, John Entwistle, Keith Moon, Paul Nicholas, Jack Nicholson, Robert Powell, Tina Turner. I mean, it's ridiculous. The amount of people that were in that were ridiculous. And uh, the thing is that Tommy's never had like a definitive plot, which. You know, it depends on how you look at it. It's uh, basically a British Army captain, Walker, goes missing during an expedition, believed to be dead. His wife gives birth to their son, Tommy. Years later, he returns home and discovers that his wife has found a new lover. And then they kill him. And Tommy's mother brainwashes him into believing that he didn't see or hear anything, which kind of shuts down all of his senses. So he's deaf, mute, and blind. And that kind of builds on this mythos of Tommy. And in the, okay, so the film version, Keith actually plays Uncle Ernie. Uncle Ernie is an antagonist in the Who's Tommy. He is introduced in the song Fiddle About as Tommy's wicked uncle who molests the boy about while babysitting him. And because he's deaf, dumb, and blind, he is unable to tell his parents what Ernie did to him. Years later, as portrayed in the song, We're Not Gonna Take It, Tommy has apparently forgiven Ernie and hired him as his assistant in the new church. Ernie's main job is to show the converts to their pinball machines. <laughs> okay, and here is the song. I think this is the only song that Keith Moon actually wrote for the soundtrack. <laughs>
So that was that. <laughs> that okay. Sums it up nicely. That's okay. Remember what I was saying last episode that Keith Moon really couldn't sing? Yes. Yeah. That really shows that off. Oh, is that is that Keith trying to sing? Oh yes. yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, because that song was so short, I am actually now going to play what is widely considered arguably one of the best songs on the soundtrack. So this is Pinball Wizard. choose one i i would have to say that i like the spectacle that is the elton john version 
but I'm, I am a large, I'm a big fan of Elton John. So, but I'm also a big fan of the who, so I'm torn because it seems like the Elton John version is a beautiful marriage of both, you know, Elton John's eccentricities and the who and their, their incredible musicality. I mean, you're talking about two powerhouse artists joining together on a song. So, yeah. I mean, like, you're not going to go wrong. So, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. I just, I like both versions, but if I had to choose one, it probably would be the Elton John because you're getting the best of both worlds. Sure. Um, but I think like we should take a little detour in our story because I want to talk about Oliver Reed. <laughs> Oliver Reed and Keith Moon were both ridiculous individuals. <laughs> and so Oliver Reed plays against Keith Moon in the film Tommy. He's Frank, yeah. He's Frank in the film. And so Oliver Reed was offered the opportunity to have a role in Jaws. It was going to be shooting in Los Angeles. And Oliver Reed basically said, great, Los Angeles, a city I love about as much as my genitals being crushed by estate realtors. So, okay. <laughs> so he'd rather have his nuts crushed than actually spend time in Los Angeles. And this was a guy who was known for getting into bar fights and just causing all kinds a, of mayhem. That, that, that's understandable. Yeah, sure. Well the, well, the thing was that Oliver Reed was the kind of person that if you put him and Keith Moon in a room together, oh, it was kind of, they drew parallels of their friendship, kind of like Fight Club. And I know you probably haven't seen that movie, TJ, but uh, I, I feel like I understand immediately what they're saying when they're like, this was just like Fight Club. So that you have these two insane characters basically wreaking havoc on the entire world. Well, the, the two of them would be left. The room would not. That's what yes. would <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so, I was going to say that mixing the two of them would probably be like mixing fire and explosives. Pretty much. I mean, Basically. Right. Stick, sticks of dynamite and lit matches. <laughs> yeah, well... The way they met actually was Oliver Reed was taking a bath in his Surrey home and all of a sudden he heard a helicopter approaching. And so he got out of the bath, didn't bother to get dressed. So he's completely naked. <laughs> he walks out onto his lawn and starts shooting at the helicopter. So the helicopter. Oh my lands. God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, wow. heli the helicopter lands and Keith Moon gets out of the helicopter. And then Oliver Reed was like, I wanted to punch him, but unfortunately I liked him immediately. So they became these these friends that were just, I mean, they it, it was, it, it, let me just put it this way. I'm glad that I was not staying in hotels in the 1970s. With these guys. In, <laughs> a, in any capacity, anywhere near the hood. Well, Oliver Reed is known for, uh, he allegedly had a tattoo on his penis, and he had built a reputation of showing it to people within hours of meeting them. Well, can you can you read how he passed away? Oh, yeah, I so mean, it, it's the, the most. <laughs> well, pull up, pull the list up because you have to read. Dare I, dare I ask what he had tattooed there? Uh, I didn't uh, inquire, and uh, we're not, not googling. We're it. not googling that because <laughs> Oliver Reed penis tattoo is not something I want. <laughs> like you have to have uh, a safety search on it. Oliver yeah. Reed wang tat. <laughs> <laughs> so most people know you know, Oliver Reed from his final performance, which was in the film Gladiator, Academy Award-winning film Gladiator, yep. uh, where he played, I don't want to say opposite Russell Crowe, but he was kind of a side character to Russell Crowe. Um, apparently, he did not get along with Russell Crowe or Richard Harris, both of whom were in that film, mm. and he clashed with them frequently. Uh, I'm going to read you Oliver Reed, who passed again in 1999, 
And after he passed, they had to digitally finish his role in Gladiator because he was in the midst of filming. So he died in a bar in Malta that he enjoyed after allegedly consuming three bottles of Captain Morgan's rum, eight bottles of beer, numerous doubles of the famous grouse whiskey and Hennessy cognac. Ah, good grief. And he was 61 at the time of his passing. Oh, you left out the other part. Uh, oh, he, he also allegedly, this is according to the account, beat five much younger members of the Royal Navy sailors at arm wrestling. And that's, that's the day Holy crap. This is the day of his the death. The day his the and, day and In fact, died. when he passed, the bar was renamed Ollie's in his honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. if you see the film Gladiator, it does close with a, a, tight, a card that says, you know, in loving memory of our friend Oliver Reed. But I'm just glad that Keith had like a friend that was kind of on his level because yeah, well, well, and you know he he was also friends with Bonzo. Oh so I'm trying Lord. to imagine the three the three of them in the same room together. I I don't mm, boy. Yeah. <laughs> How much insurance do you have to have if you're like okay, we're gonna have Keith Moon, Bonzo, and Oliver Reed in the same room? All of it. Yeah, I feel like all of the insurance that there is. That, that's pretty much three of the four horsemen right there. <laughs> well, sadly, we're just going to turn out of the humor portion of this because we've talked about we've talked about all kinds of insanity, not just in the last couple of episodes, but in our entire show as a whole. But I don't think we've ever had a story quite like this, which was that Keith and his wife, and this is the, the, this is apparently one of the lesser known stories in the Keith Moon Pantheon. And this happened on January 4th, 1970, when Neil Bo- uh, Bolin, who was Keith's driver and bodyguard, he was accidentally run over by Moon's Bentley. And oh, what happened was he, uh, Moon and his wife and several friends attended the opening of the Red Lion, which was a pub in Hatfield, uh, and that's Heffershire, oh Lord, I'm so sorry, Hertfordshire, owned by the son of his neighbors. The pub was patronized by working class skinheads. They took offense to Moon's display of rock star wealth, and he was, of course, driving a fancy car. And worse than that, his preference for expensive brandy over beer. So, like, you had these skinheads in this bar watching Keith Moon have this expensive brandy pull up in a Bentley, like, have this extravagant lifestyle. And these are, like, working class. Like, I'm not on the side of the skinheads, by the way, just so you yes. know. But like, uh, yes, obviously not. If you if you look at the the, the 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 economy of the two classes basically being placed on display here, you know you've got Keith Moon's group who's probably drinking you know fancy drinks, comes in a nice car, well dressed, living that rock star life, and then you've got these working class skinheads. So by closing time, the scene had gotten ugly, and Moon's party entered his Bentley, but they were prevented by leaving by a group of patrons who began rocking the vehicle and throwing coins. Uh, that Bolin left the Bentley to confront the skinheads in front of the car's hood. Moon, who didn't drive, even when sober, nonetheless, tried to save his friends and tried to drive away to safety. Tragically, neither he nor the other passengers realized that as the Bentley moved forward, Bolin wound up underneath the Bentley and was dragged down the road. Oh, was, God. Yeah, he Yikes. was pronounced dead at the hospital later that night. And, and from what I understand was basically like these skinheads started shaking the car. And so to protect the Bentley, Bolin got out and tried to kind of clear the front and he didn't put it in park or it was in neutral, but it started to move forward. And basically Keith tried to prevent it from going forward and tried to you know, steer it away, but Bolin fell underneath the wheels. Ugh. 
Moon was charged with Boland's death as well as drunk driving without a license or insurance. Six weeks later, they actually ruled that the death was an accident, clearing Moon, although he would later plead guilty to the driving charges. That would haunt Moon for the rest of his life. Sure. Because he felt absolutely responsible for killing a very close friend to him. And you got to think, someone like Keith Moon probably didn't have a lot of close friends. I mean, think about it. He had like the guys in the Who, but he frequently clashed with them. But I mean, even I mean, even yeah. hearkening back to the to the to part one of this, I remember LD reading stuff that were, were Townsend kind of said like, you know, we're not really close. We're not right, friends. Yeah. We don't have we have nothing in common except music. So may, so he may not even have, have found close, you know, friendly solace within the band. Yeah, which is which is why I think this would hit him so hard and also explain how he was so detached from those people that were in again in his immediate circle. Yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't a, a a situation like our last episode with Rush, where they were brothers. I mean, they oh, they sure. were yeah. they they did Monty Python sketches together, and they yeah. played twenty four hundred concerts and Same. were together for forty years and were there for each other and stuff. This is this sounded like it was a little bit of a different situation with Keith, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, he hasn't really grown up. Like, he never really had a chance to, quote-unquote, grow up. He joined this band when he was 17, and we're in 1970 now. He that so much he's, he's only in his 20s. So, I mean, like, yeah, we were, I mean, we were all destructive in our 20s. We were crazy in our 20s. Well, okay, at- but now take, take as crazy as you were in your college years and early adulthood and as I was, and multiply it with fame and, and untold, almost inexi- inexhaustible amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think about how crazy it would have been. Oh, yeah. Thank oh, God yeah. I didn't have money when I was like 20. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, I've not, I would not Holy have done crap. Yeah. Oh, I, well, but, I, I would probably be in jail. If I had yeah. in my 20s, I would have been in jail. But probably. so, but, so you're, you're immature. You're, in his case, you're not, you're, this starts when you're, you're not even an adult yet. I mean, you're still yeah. a kid. And suddenly you're married and you have a kid and you're famous and you've got lots of money and you've got the world at your feet, it seems like. That's that's a lot for a 17-year-old. And it's weird that, that basically so many of these bands started when they were so young back then. Yeah. I mean, Bonzo, Bonzo met Robert Plant when they were both 17 years old and playing in the Crawling King Snakes or some band <laughs> such as that. And and see, they're not as policed back then as these no. bands are now because they're the quote-unquote boy bands are all kind of manufactured. They're cast and they're yeah. such stringent rules and regulations that they don't have the opportunity to kind of go all who and, on us. And there's also no social media. Bear in mind. Yeah, that there's is no a social media. Right. No and if you think about it that way, you know, on January 4th, 1970, if there had been social media, there probably would have been people with their phones out. Mm-hmm. We would have several different views of this event happening. There wouldn't have been a question who was driving or what happened or who was at fault. Like, right. So, I mean, it's it, it's a completely different thing that where it's a different beast that you're dealing with back then and and as you know compared to now yeah but it's just this is just this it's hard to get your mind around having that kind of fame and wealth thrust upon you when you're a, you're literally still a kid oh yeah you're given the keys to the kingdom and you don't even know how to unlock the door when you're when mm-hmm. you're keith moon and you've had what was it 20 jobs and you've been fired from all of them by the time you're 18 or whatever it was yeah <laughs> um this is ri- ridiculous Hey guys, we do have to take a short break for our sponsors and we will be right back. And we are back. So hopping back into to Keith, uh, he rarely played on other people's records. 
we talked about how he did did happen to play with the Beatles for All You Need Is Love. Singing badly in the background, right? Yeah, but he only released one solo album of his own, Two Sides of the Moon. And at that time, it wasn't taken seriously. But now the album has captured the very spirit of Moon. Now, I don't have anything from that recording, but I do have something that he wrote as our ending song. <laughs> and uh, if, if it's anything like that, it's going to be very interesting. So, all right, thank, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to do an, a, a number from the new album now called Blowing Up a Shitter with a Cherry Bomb. That's <laughs> <laughs> a classic. The, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> it's a crazy mix of innocence, rock and roll, leering, joyful lust, and a filthy sense of humor. <laughs> so, not going to play anything from that because uh, the next thing was we're going to talk about Bob O'Reilly, yes. which is probably, if I had to pick my favorite Who song, this is probably it. And probably the, the Who song that the fewest people know the actual title of. Right. <laughs> well, everybody calls it. Teenage Wasteland. Yeah. 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 I, I actually, um, for some reason, I always thought it was Teenage Wasteland. And I was working at 2020 Video. And I suddenly realized, wait, what's this song called? It's Baba O'Reilly? <laughs> like, oh, 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 O'Reilly. <laughs> Auto parts. Auto parts. Yeah. <laughs> It was for his Lifehouse project, which was a rock opera intended to be the follow-up to Tommy in Lifehouse. He, he thought big and thematically, didn't he? He really <laughs> did. Like nothing. I mean, well, I mean, quad, uh, Tommy, this Lighthouse project, which you've referenced a few times, Quadrophenia. There's he like it seems like Pete thinks big and he thinks thematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can if I have to point to one instrument and say this encapsulates the entire Who catalog. It would just be a gong <laughs> because it is large, it is garish, it is loud, it is long, it resonates, and there's it's it's ridiculous to have it on stage. But you know what? You need it, and I think mm-hmm. that 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 sums up the Who's catalog. He didn't think in small bites. <laughs> now, no. now Keith Moon thought in small bites because if you notice when I played Tommy's Holiday Camp, that was 58 seconds long. Mm-hmm. And I believe our final song is maybe like a minute and a half, minute and 10 seconds, if that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Bob O'Reilly was for this Lifehouse project, which was intended to be the follow-up to The Who's Tommy. In Lifehouse, a Scottish farmer named Ray, who would have sung a song at the beginning as he gathered his wife Sally and two children to begin their exodus to London. When Lifehouse was scrapped, eight of the songs were salvaged for a recording for the album Who's Next with Bob O'Reilly as the lead-off track. So that is what I'm going to play for you guys right now. Because if I had to, with gun to my head, this would probably be considered my favorite song by The Who.
good song ah! <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny is you have the, the who doing the song and it's you have one of the most powerful and best vocalists of all time roger daltrey and prodigy guitar player and a, a crazy but but amazing drummer and one of the two or three best rock bassists ever what gives this song the power is somebody playing the damn fiddle <laughs> <laughs> That's what blows my mind. I mean, or, or whatever it is, it sounds like a fiddle to my untrained ear. But the but how how that how that elevates the song is amazing. When you're talking about the freaking who, yeah, that drum is what is driving the bus mm-hmm. on the song. Like I don't know, I I know you. We can't see you, but you can see me. Did you just see what like happened to me when that song is playing? <laughs> yes. Bom, bom. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. I just. Just start and, air drumming loudly. And you mentioned you you mentioned this in the last episode in between us, you know, quoting "So I Married an Axe Murderer" and <laughs> all the other nonsense we engaged in. Um, <laughs> is that there are times when, because in almost every 
rock band, the, the bassist and the drummer are locked in. They're working together. They're laying the groove down. There's a lot of times that Keith actually is fighting with John, it sounds like. He, yeah. he is not he's not just trying to lock in with his rhythm section partner. He's the the drums are actually at the front playing at the top. Yeah. He's not gonna go with the button. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's it's like, almost it's almost like Keith thought he was a lead guitar player, but he hit things instead of <laughs> you know, pluck strings. Yeah. Well, you know, we just went through a rough time where we talked about his driver. How about we just spend a little bit of time talking more about some of the crazy things he did? Yay! Yeah, I like I like wild antics. Okay, so he was staying in a luxury hotel in Copenhagen in 1972. For some reason, he became enamored with his room's <laughs> waterbed. Oh, God. He, he wanted to bring it down into the lobby and enlisted Pete Townsend to help him. But before they could even get it out of the frame, the bed bursts and flooded the room and the hallway, and the quick-thinking Moon called the front desk complaining about the catastrophe and was soon moved to the presidential suite, which... Oh, uh, God. They, they actually wrecked that room as, <laughs> as well, so... But he was trying to get his bandmate to help him move the waterbed down into the lobby so he could inspect it. <laughs> it's amazing. So it was at this time where he went to the doctor... And of course they did, they did the full on checkup and they're like, well, you know, you know how they always ask, like, are you drinking? Are you smoking? Are you what, what, what year are we talking here? We're talking about 1970 ish. Okay. All right. 71, 70, 70, 70, 70, 72. Okay. So this, this is a, a little while after he, it was once determined that his sobriety was not salvageable when it was viewed that he, he drank a bottle of Quavassier and a bottle of oh, champagne this, and took yep. a bunch of amphetamines for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. This was after that. <laughs> What'd you have for so what'd you have for breakfast? Well a bottle of Quavassier and some grits. <laughs> like what? The grit the grits level you out. The, the, the grips absorb. But he so he went to the doctor for this checkup and he told the doctor what he was drinking, which was that he was having a bottle of whiskey a day. Oh the doctor basically said, you know I actually don't recommend that. Well he said, you know, if you if you stop drinking a bottle of whiskey every day you'll probably live a little bit longer. So he switched to drinking a bottle of brandy a day. <laughs> oh, great. He's a thinking man. <laughs> in 1972, he flipped his new Porsche into a somersault when he dropped the speeding car into first gear, coming to rest only a few feet from the edge of a cliff. Jeez. Goodness gracious. Pretty sure there's also like three people in the car with him at and that he, point. And so so but he's driving he's driving a Porsche really fast and almost goes off a cliff, but he, he didn't have a license or, or anything. No. He we learned he, earlier. Yeah. I don't I don't actually think he ever got his license. <laughs> I which, which I have to tell you, and that maybe it was different in the UK at that time. In the United States back then it was a pretty low bar to clear to get a driver's license. I think that my, I, I recall a couple of my uncles telling me they got their driver's license from the damn Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> uh, actually, li li we like, were... li literally, they spent sent like 50 cents to Sears and Roebuck and they got a driver's license. Well, do Sears. you remember grandma's best friend, Marie? Uh-huh. Marie actually showed me her first driver's license because she still kept it and it was metal. Yep, they were metal. It was almost like a dog tag. You got like a metal dog tag looking thing, but yeah. but you could get order them from like Sears and Roebuck or there's a lot of catalogs where you could just you you would send like your name and address and stuff and they would they would kind of emboss that in like a or, or stamp <laughs> it into a metal little metal plate and send it to you and that was your and I'm making great big bunny ears driver's license. 
Yeah, I well, Marie, when she showed me hers, I was like, what is this? She was like, oh, that's my driver's license. That was metal? Because apparently that was actually, that that was that was legal. That you could just yep. have, there was no photo on it. It was, it was literally, I think her name. You, did, you didn't have to go to, you didn't have to go to the DMV or any official government yeah. office to get it. You just, yeah, I mean, pretty much you just, you could probably print your own, but you could get a, a nice fancy metal one from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Yeah, yeah, different time. Yeah. Unlike his contemporaries, which were like, you know, Ginger Baker and John Bonham, Moon actually hated drum solos and refused to play them in concerts. Really? At Square Garden on the 10th of June, 1974, Townsend and Entwistle decided to spontaneously stop playing during Waspman and listen to Moon's drum solo. Moon continued for like a couple seconds and then stopped and just screamed, drum solos are boring. <laughs> Which is wow. <laughs> and in 1974, that same year, he actually found another use for that Nazi costume we talked about beforehand, which was to try and annoy his new Malibu neighbor, Steve McQueen. Wow. While Moon had designs on becoming friends with McQueen and his wife, Allie McGraw, the actor made it clear that he preferred his privacy and not one to take no for an answer. <laughs> Moon bulldozed his way into McQueen's home only to be bitten by the family dog and which it was reported that Moon actually bit the dog back. Oh. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> so, so, so literally man bites dog. Man bites dog. Yep. That, that, the, was that, that, that was a headline someone could have actually written. Yep. And then when the movie star brought the authorities into the matter, Moon showed up to the meeting dressed as a Nazi general. Not just any general, Erwin Rommel. Yeah, Erwin Rommel. And then after oh that, he left his neighbor alone. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you Good really Lord. Trump, I bit your dog and dressed up like a Nazi to piss you off. Not just that, in the, in the formal proceedings about the incident, he dressed as a Nazi the, officer. The authorities were called oh my in. God. <laughs> well, uh, it's like, well, well what, is, what is exactly your, your neighbor has done to annoy you? Well, he, um, he bit my dog. <laughs> and he, he marched through my front yard wearing jack boots. <laughs> good God, not Keith. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, good Lord. I told yeah. you. It's, it, I, 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 I don't know if it gets any better than that or worse than that whichever way you're looking at oh it it's it, it you know it probably doesn't get any blank than that um but by this point in his career it was actually uncertain if he could finish a show without an incident except for two informal shows for the kids are all right this was kind of the last public performance with the who during the 1973 quadrophenia uh, tour the who's debut u.s date at the cow palace in daly city california moon ingested a mixture of tranquilizers and brandy and should he not have done that is that frowned upon i mean do it after the show i guess if you're gonna do it he passed out on his drum kit during we won't get fooled again and the band stopped playing a wow. group of roadies carried moon off stage they gave him a shower and an injection of cortisone and sent him back on stage after a 30-minute delay. He passed out again during Magic Bus and again was removed from the stage. The band, the band continued without him for several songs before Townsend just asked the audience, can anyone play drums? I mean, somebody good? And a drummer in the audience, Scott Halpin, came up and played the rest of the show. That's amazing. Yeah. Didn't um, at one point Faith No More allow people to like come up on stage and sing with them? Yeah, that was Faith No More, yeah. And 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 I think one of the people who did was Courtney Love. <laughs> wow. Wow. Pre pre fame, Courtney Love. Very similar to that. That's um have you 
Have you ever been, either of you, to a concert where the performers were just drunk off their ass and couldn't play like this? Because I, I, I literally, I ne- that's never happened to me. Thankfully. Okay. Well, I won't say. I won't say we walked out of Brian Wilson's concert. <laughs> yes, you will, because we did. Because we yeah. did walk out of Brian Wilson's concert, but it wasn't because he was drunk. It was because he was a grumpy bastard. I could say that. I mean, he was he like so. So he was so he was himself that night. <laughs> Yeah. So, and and I understand he goes through a lot of things with the audio schizophrenia and and stuff like that. And, but, and I, I understand that, but if you, if you can't handle your entire crowd singing a song you wrote 50 years ago, which is still a mainstay in the public zeitgeist and possibly one of the greatest songs ever written, which was God only knows the entire i mean it was beautiful the entire by, by far my favorite song of theirs ever and by it, a long yeah, way god bless pet sounds you know we're in the hollywood bowl so you have the entirety of the hollywood bowl singing god only knows and when he finished it they tried to give him a standing ovation and he goes ah oh, shut up and sit down i got more singing to do and we're like okay on that note i think i've got something better to do <laughs> i i think the closest i came to was i did see beck at vegas and uh, God, that- he was he was high as a kite, and it didn't detract. Like he, it's not that he couldn't perform the show; he certainly did. He just took long breaks between songs that would often turn to his bandmates and say, "Okay, what song are we doing?" And then they'd remind him, and he'd be like, "Oh, okay, here's you know whatever." And he'd go into it. But that's the closest. Yeah, I've, I've been to a few concerts where the performers were high, but it didn't impede yeah. them from playing. Yeah, and he, and he performed all his songs. If anything, it enhanced their performance. He did a yeah, full set, but I've, he wasn't incapacitated. I've had more people be jerks. Like during, like I saw Eminem in '99. Didn't he play like four songs and leave? <laughs> yeah, he he. Well, okay. First of all, I think he was like two and a half hours late. He finally showed up. He did "Hi, My Name Is Mushrooms," '97 Bonnie and Clyde. Then he did "Hi, My Name Is," and then he closed with "Hi, My Name Is," but then let everyone sing "Hi, My Name Is." So, you know. <laughs> That was a great concert. Thanks for that. A friend of mine went and saw a friend of mine went and saw Hank Jr. This is a long time ago, and he came out and played. Uh, you know, he did a couple of songs, and then he did "There's a Tear in My Beer," and then he did about two other songs, and then he did "There's a Tear in My Beer," and then he he did another song, and then he did "There's a Tear in My Beer," and by the time he started to play "There's a Tear in My Beer" for the fourth time, <laughs> and the crowd began to boo him because he was slurring the words, he mooned them and left the stage. That's brilliant. Uh, what was the one TJ used to where Jimmy Buffett was so drunk he like stumbled off? Yes, the yeah, okay, yes, the old Charlotte Memorial uh, Stadium, uh, the outdoor one for uh, the a big, yeah, big twenty five thousand seat outdoor football stadium. He played a, a show there in about eighty nine or ninety, and this was a massively anticipated show. It sold out in record time. It was twenty five thousand people there to see Buffett. And this and is like back when they're, like you didn't order your tickets online. You actually like went to the box. This is like the, this is eight, 89 or 90. There's no such thing as online. You went you went and stood in line at damn Tower Records and bought tickets <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And he played for about 30 minutes. <laughs> oh my god. Because he was just he was too hammered to finish. <laughs> he 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 played about six, seven, eight songs and that was that. <laughs> See, I'm lucky, like, because the, the shows that were so anticipated for me have always turned out to be something brilliant other than the Brian Wilson. My, mine, too. Because sure. I, I... the two times I got to see Garth, he was incredible. The mm-hmm. time I got to see Dolly, even though I was crying the entire time, she don't was... even care. Because you know what? The two guys that I was with and the other girl I was with cried the entire time while watching Dolly as well. 
So I don't care that I cried the entire time I, watching Dolly. And I, <laughs> sure. I, well, I saw Garth and Trisha. It was great. I saw Bonnie Wright and James Taylor. It was fantastic. We've seen I James saw, Taylor three times now, yeah, and it's every time he is. The only thing that drug related was at one point, the first time that we went to go see James Taylor was he, during the intermission, he goes, hey guys, we're going to go back and drop some lewds and we'll be back <laughs> in just a little bit. All right. Bye. Funny thing is when I, when I saw JT and it's probably been about three years ago now, we, we went and saw Bonnie Wright and James Taylor. He played, he was a, like a freaking, like a, a champ. He played like a Trojan for about two and a half straight hours. Would you mm. say that he was a steamroller? <laughs> yes, he was a steamroller, baby. And, and and he played literally every song everybody in there wanted to hear, unless you like a lesser known hit or a B-side, which I had. So I had like one song that I would like for him to have played that I didn't get to hear. But outside that, like you had no complaints. He played everything. Well, we saw, we saw Billy Joel and we took the train back home and there were people complaining. They're like, well, he didn't do this song. You're like, yeah, but he did Xanadu. Yeah. He did, some yeah. Weird stuff. he did some weird stuff, but yeah, you know what? You just saw Billy Joel, so shut up. Yeah, shut up. I saw, you know, I got to see Aerosmith a couple of times. They were awesome. I, I saw Eric Clapton. He played for about three hours. It was amazing. <laughs> it was mind-blowingly next level. Holy crap. Like, I, there, there were times he, he did things with the guitar that made you want to cry. It, was, it sounded so good. Like, you, you, didn't, you didn't know... You were like a, a like an irritable little child that wanted its binky. Like you didn't know what to do with your, these weird emotions you had. I, I know that. I, wonder, nobody, I don't know whether to kick my feet or cry or poop. I, What's happening? I, that was a kind of. I know no one else on the planet knows who this guy is, other unless you're you know one of our listeners from Britain. Uh, but there's a, a guy named Mika, and uh, I swear the kids, we, we 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 will get back to Keith Moon. But that was kind of how I felt because he had confetti cannons and giant lollipops and these giant puppets that came out and there was glitter and he was singing. And I think Will turned to me because it looked like I was about to explode. Like, yeah, you know, my heart had started turning red in the inside of my chest and I'm like glowing and I, I, I feel like I'm about to explode. It was awesome. It was a normal length concert, but there was so much going on. You didn't know where to look at. And his music is just so incredibly Freddie Mercury-esque that I, I, I just, I, I found my happy spot. And that was like my happy moment. And I loved it. So, 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 so sort of like the time my cousin and I went and saw Van Halen right after we'd graduated from high school. Probably, yeah. And started and started a riot in the parking lot, but I don't know that the statute of limitations is up on that yet. So, <laughs> so we're not going to say anything. We'll probably just go ahead and, yeah, just get back to Keith Moon now. Yeah, so during the opening date of the band's March 1976 U.S. tour at Boston Garden, Moon passed out on his drum kit after two numbers, and then that show was actually rescheduled. The next evening, Moon systematically destroyed everything in his hotel room, cutting himself in the process, and then passing out. Oh, so, was, did he not have a? Was there not a drum tech or somebody that they brought along for these sorts of situations? Because it seemed like they were happening pretty frequently. I, you know, you know like, well, okay, look, everybody, here's Keith, and he's going to puke and pass out now, and then you know, Jimmy's going to come up and play. <laughs> Right the show or whatever. Yeah, they're just there's some artists out there that take care of their their bodies and their instruments on the day of. I know Celine Dion doesn't speak the entire day that she has a concert, and I'm wondering how that works now 
that you know she has a uh, she had a residency in Vegas, which would be you know every day you play a concert. Mm-hmm. But Keith Moon didn't do that. <laughs> he didn't take care of himself. Well, I mean, I just I just wonder why at a certain point the Who didn't bring along either a backup drummer, a backup, a basic. I mean, yeah, basically like a like a second tamer. Yeah, I don't know. They needed like Frank Wright to come yeah. off the bench and. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, he was discovered by his manager who took him to the hospital telling him, I'm going to get the doctor to get you a nice fit so we can get you back in two days because I want to break your jaw right now. (laughs) You have this man around so many times, I'm not having it anymore. The doctors told Bill, which was their manager, that had he not intervened, he might have likely bled to death because, you know, the the, the thinners, with with everything that was in his system, his blood was really thin at that point. So he could have bled out. Uh, Mars suggested at this point that Daltrey and Entwistle seriously consider firing Moon, but they decided that doing that would actually make his life worse. So, I mean, he's on a very destructive path on this point. It, it, yeah, and, and and there's kind of the conundrum of what to do about it. Do, do you wake him up by firing him, kicking him out of the band, or, or would that send him spiraling? You know, you're, that almost leaves everybody else kind of walking on eggshells a little bit because you almost don't know how to handle it. Well, yeah, you know, do you let this destructive force stay in the band and kind of hope for the best when I'm not saying the rest of the band had their stuff together, but they were at least able to get through their shows at the time, you know? Sure. I mean, at this point in the 70s, everybody's on drugs and we make a joke about it. But honestly, like, you know, when you have incredible fame and incredible power and incredible notoriety, people will just give you drugs. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to seek them out or buy them. Like they're they just- use that as a way to get into your circle, actually. A lot yeah, of because they want to be in your orbit. How, well, gee, how, how can I, how can I get to be buddies with Keith Moon or John Bonham or somebody like that? I don't know, man. Try to give them some coke or something. You know what I mean? That's it's a it's a an, I mean that it's I hate it, but that that's that's a way to get in their circle and to get in their orbit. A lot of times is to you kind of buy your way in with drugs and stuff. Yeah, M. Whistle has said that Moon and the Who had reached their life peak in 1975-76 and at the end of the 76 U.S. tour in Miami that August the drummer Delirious was treated in the Hollywood Memorial Hospital for eight days. The group was concerned that he'd be unable to complete the last leg of the tour which ended at the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto on the 21st of October. Moon's last public show. During the band's recording uh, sabbatical between 1976 and 78, Moon gained a considerable amount of weight. So it's not like with Bonham or or, or or whatever where you know they about to go on tour and they're they're rehearsing and he dies. It's yeah. this, there's a big gap between last show he plays with them and when when he ultimately passes. Yeah, well, what happens is they do this tour, and what I'm about to talk about is how they record their last album with Keith. And what happens is you know they basically go to the band and say, hey guys you're going to release this album. Let's start planning the tour. And Townsend and Entwistle, I think it's mainly Townsend, basically say, look, I I want to be with my family. I don't want a tour. I know if we go out on tour, it's going to destroy Keith. If we're here and we we just do really good promotion for the album, I'm sure that the fans will understand. And that's kind of what happened. So 
you know, he gained, he gained a lot of weight because of this. So by the time of the Who's invitation only show at the state cinema on the 15th of December, 1977 for the kids are all right. Moon was visibly overweight and had difficulty sustaining a solid performance. So he is still doing performances. It's just not touring after recording who are you townsend refused to follow the album with the tour unless moon stopped drinking he said if moon's playing didn't improve that he would be fired and daltrey actually later denied threatening firing him but it said at that time that the drummer was way out of control so who are you is the eighth studio album by the who released on august 18th 1978 by polydor records so we're already into 1978 wow the united kingdom at polydor records in the united kingdom and mca records in the united states and although the album received mixed reviews from critics, it was actually a commercial success. Peaking I love that album. Oh, God, it's so good. It's a solid one, yeah. I, um, I, oddly, as Keith goes out of control and the, the, there's all this conflict and, and stuff in, you know, between the band, the last couple of albums, because what, Quadrophenia is among the last handful they did, and Who Are You, those, those are a couple of my favorites, actually. I feel like when focused, Keith Moon is a force. He is unstoppable he is incredible he is he is that the i mean just watch him perform it is it is mesmerizing to actually watch him perform and it's so sad that this is you know this is kind of how it ended and, and it sounds like he's so at least reliable in the studio sense it sounds like the touring is where most issues are coming up because i think at this point you know he is divorced from his his first wife mm -hmm. um kim and Mandy, so I, I hate. There's no wise, nice way to say this, but now that he doesn't have that bother of having a wife and kid in his life, he's kind of free to do what he wants that way. That's when he met Annette, mm. and I feel like she kind mm -hmm. of. I'm not going to say she had a, a control of him, but I feel like there was a dynamic shift once he started dating her. So at this point, he's not married. In 78, he's not married. So he doesn't have that, that marriage thing hanging mm. over his head. Like I was saying, it had commercial success and it was peaking at number two on the US charts and number six on the UK charts. This is the last album to feature Keith Moon as their drummer, who actually died three weeks after it was released. Oh, wow. The ironic nature of the text, not to be taken away, was actually stenciled in on Keith's chair. Because what happened was they went to go take the photo for the album. And the photographer basically said, geez, oh, everybody looks really good. Keith, Keith looks kind of pudgy. Yeah. Is there a, a way that we can kind of hide that? And also Keith was not feeling well. Yeah. And so he was having kind of a, an issue staying vertical. So they put him in a chair, which, you know, said not to be taken away, which basically in like film speak was like, this stays on the studio. Yeah. Right. But they had set him and they, they turned him away. So if you look at that album cover, you see all the band members and then Keith's in this chair, kind of hiding the pudge of his tummy. Mm -hmm. It was recorded at a time when punk was actually becoming highly popular. However, this isn't reflected in this album, which incorporates the elements of progressive rock. And according to biographer Tony Fletcher, it was produced in such a way as to appeal commercially to radio at that time. Whereas, you know, punk music was actually meant to be played live to capture that chaos and that manic feeling of going against the man. And all the drunk people screaming covered up for the fact that they couldn't play the rent. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, just being honest. So there was a three-year hiatus between Who Are You and The Who's previous album, The Who by Numbers. 
the band was actually drifting apart at this time. The band members were working on various solo projects. Moon was diving deeper into drugs and alcohol. And so the initial sessions at Radford Studios produced by Glenn Johns and John Astley were kind of lackadaisical. Uh, John Astley recalled that no one wanted to work and the members looked forward more to drinking and reminiscing at six in the evening. <laughs> Ashley felt that he and John's pushed Moon too hard to play a simpler style, which John believes that Moon lost confidence in his ability and would deliberately go out of his way to resist suggestions. Moon's health was especially an object of concern. His drumming skills had noticeably deteriorated and his performance of most of the sessions were substandard. He was unable to play in six, eight time on the track, music must change. So the drums were removed completely from the track and were placed with the sound of footsteps and a few cymbal crashes. Oh, wow. John Entwistle remarked that Moon couldn't think of anything to play. On another occasion, Ashley recalls that I was doing the drum track and he hadn't learned the song and I actually had to stand up and conduct. He said, can you give me a cue when it gets to the middle part? He hadn't done his homework. And Whistle similarly described Moon as really out of condition and disgusted with himself as a result. The recording was further delayed when lead singer Roger Daltrey underwent throat surgery and then went on a lengthy Christmas break. Townsend had sliced his hand in a window during an argument with his parents. Oh, jeez. <sighs> this is this is a mess. So, I mean, like, there there were a lot of problems during with everybody it sounds like yeah and one of their keyboardists suffered a broken arm falling out of a taxi door <laughs> further delays how, how in the world did this album end up being as good as it was i don't know failing up is all i can say because because it because it's a because it's a great album i love it yeah but i mean daltrey couldn't sing Moon couldn't play. Yeah, what were they doing? Yeah, like Townsend sliced his hand open in a window, arguing with his mother about something. This is yeah bizarre. Well, Daltrey actually punched uh, the one of the producers in the face due to an argument over a rough mix, <laughs> rendering him unconscious. God, wow. Yeah, and after a long and frustrating day, Townsend actually planned to fire Moon from the band unless he decided to clean up his act, which is something that he was saying like, I don't want to do that because it would make his life worse. Now he's like seriously considering it because it's, yeah. at this point he's he's unable to do his job. So, yeah. but I mean, you've got to think like, how do you fix this? This is such a, this is a black swan moment for mm. the who where, you know, someone can't fulfill their job, but they're pushing and pushing and pushing. And so you just, you don't know what to do with them. Right. John's had to leave in April with Ashley remaining on as the sole producer. And under Ashley's command, the sessions returned to Ramport with all of the drums except for Who Are You recorded in the last two weeks of production. And that was released on August the 18th, 1978. So... With everything that happened, they actually, I guess, ended up from what from what I'm reading, suggests that they finally got to pull the drums together on the last two weeks. Yeah. Of, of recording. There are so many parallels between Moon and Bonham that they well, for one thing, they they're the same age when they die, just for starters. But that at the very end, they're struggling physically because of their addictions. They're kind of dragging in and really laboring to do their work even in the studio much less to play live if you kind of look you kind of look at the last few months of both of theirs both of them's life it's there's a lot of similarities going on there like a lot 
like I was saying, they had the photo session for the initial album release for the cover. Photographer Terry O'Neill insisted that Keith actually sit with his back to the camera and just turn around so that which is kind of a what an ass yeah to look at the 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 a guy in the band who you're shooting the the an album cover for and say wow you're really fat can you um not really be in the picture if we can help it yeah, yeah. see i mean that's that's basically what the person was saying right yeah 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 but but like you said somehow some way after all of this insanity with like the throat surgery and the the inability to play and falling out of cab and like punching the producer in the face <laughs> this album's incredible it really is <laughs> that would say that would be the difference between bonham and moon the last album that moon made with his band was really good <laughs> the last one that bonham made with his was not into the outdoors a turd there i said it ah. <laughs> Well, right now we're going to play something that is not a turd. It's arguably one of the the most famous tracks from this album, and I feel like we would be bemissed if we didn't play this. We would it would behoove us to play this. <laughs> so, be, I say a behoove. Behoove. behooved. And I'm going to play the song right now. Who are you? Yeah.
What a great song. It, you know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's awesome. It is yeah. hands what, down. What, what a swan song that album was. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, we can talk all we want about how good the song is, but really, like, isolation of just listening to the drums, you just hear the kind of power he's still brought to it. And it's still, if, if, you, if, uh, if I hadn't told you the story, would you have thought that there was any problems no, no, absolutely not. No, none. And that's what I was sort of the theory I was hatching that LD saw coming to life. And I, I finally formulated it because it actually ties into not only this topic, but the topic we're going to cover next week, 
uh, with Doug Hopkins, which many of you who know his story may know where I'm going with this. And that's the sort of a approach of, well, they were immensely talented and they were, you know, that's one argument. And I think when you're dealing with a band of this caliber, it's safe to say we are dealing with best in the world talent. Does anyone disagree with that? No. Yeah. So you're top, also, top, top drawer. Absolutely yeah. top drawer. No question. Yeah. So, so we have to look at it from a standpoint of almost all things being equal. I, I think a less, a, a more crass analogy is the attractive significant other where they say, oh, they're so attractive, you're willing to put up with more of their crap. And my argument is it doesn't carry weight here. And it really becomes an argument of preserving the individual versus preserving the band, especially when you're dealing with, because he, here's the point I'm trying to drive home here. Someone like Keith Moon, a lot of people look at and go, oh, it was the party lifestyle. He was touring. He was doing this. He was doing that. Well, while that may promote some poor decisions, it doesn't make you an addict. The argument is the addiction is there and it is prevalent with part of that person, but it's not like these things made him. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's such a tragic thing. Cause again, you, you mentioned John Bonham. I think we could argue the same thing. And so many musicians who lose their lives because of this. It's not that they are the musicians. It's not that they're talented. It's because they have this addiction that they're battling. And I think Keith Moon was another unfortunate casualty of that. Yeah. Okay, so about two months before his death, Keith Moon actually almost took his own life and the lives of many others while on board a flight to England. While in air, Keith Moon suddenly got the urge to visit the plane's pilots and supposedly broke into the flight deck and began drumming on the cockpit console. Oh, jeez. The flight was grounded, and he was escorted from a plane. After a blood test, he flew home the next day. So not, it's still an antic, not as funny, and I would not have been, I, I would have been quite upset if I had been on that plane. But this is like, this is 78. This is, we're talking about D.B. Cooper time. Like, yeah. hijacking is a common thing during this, and it's pre-9-11. So you could get on a plane without any kind of ID at this point. So... In mid-1978, Moon moved into a flat, flat 12, at 9 Curzon Place, later Curzon Square, Shepherd's Market, Mayfair, London, renting it from, anybody know? Oh, I think I know. What's your guess? Is it Harry Nielsen? It's Harry Nielsen. Yeah! I love that dude. Cass Elliott of the Mamas and Papas had died there four years earlier at the age of 32. So... Nielsen was concerned about letting the flat to Moon, believing that it was actually cursed. Townsend disagreed, assuring him that lightning wouldn't strike at the same place. Hmm. September 7th, 1978, a month earlier, The Who had released Who Are You, their first new album in three years. But Keith's drinking and drugs had impacted his performance and his appearance. Moon's playing was erratic and unreliable, and he was made to pose, we talked about, uh, with his back to the camera, to conceal his paunch. Keith's condition meant that the Who were in no state to tour, which left him anxious and depressed. Moon had been taking him and Evren, I believe that's how you pronounce it, him and Evren, for some time. It was a powerful sedative prescribed to him by Harley Street physician, Dr. Jeffrey Diamond. And Evren uh, was supposed to quell the craving, him, him, him and Evren. Why do they always make these drugs so ridiculous <laughs> to speak? Like, it's so hard to say the names for of these anybody. drugs. I have, like... I have it phonetically written out, so I have to keep going back to the phonetic art. But he, but that Kim and Evren was supposed to quell your craving for alcohols, but it sometimes left the user in a docile and forgetful state. But it worked. 
In the days leading up to his death, Moon had actually cut back on the booze. On September 6th, Paul McCartney threw a party at the Covent Gardens Diner Peppermint Park to celebrate what it would have been Buddy Holly's 42nd birthday. McCartney had acquired the rights to Holly's songs publishing and a biopic, The Buddy Holly Story, was premiering later that night. Moon initially told his girlfriend, Annette Walker, likes he didn't want to go to the party. When she told him that she wanted to go anyway, he changed his mind and called the his dealer who delivered some cocaine. Oh, boy. Um, the couple arrived at Peppermint Park where Annette had since insisted that Moon didn't drink or, if he did, limited himself to just two drinks. While he was still using cocaine, the fact that he didn't go wild on the free champagne was actually considered progress. The other party guests, including Paul and Linda McCartney, David Frost, ex-Faces drummer, Kenny Jones, who, unbeknownst to everyone, would actually take Moon's place in The Who, all remembered Keith being in good spirits and surprisingly sober. Others that were in the party included Led Zeppelin's uh, former tour manager, Richard Cole, remembering telling Moon that he planned to wed a neck. He said, I feel great. I've given up everything except for women, and I'm going to get married again. Moon with Annette Walker lax in February 1978. The proposal had never happened. After the party, Moon and Annette attended the midnight premiere of the Buddy Holly story at the, the Odin Square. Outside the cinema, Keith spotted Melody Maker journalist Roy Carr and grabbed him in a big bear hug. Hmm. He hugged me for about two or three minutes, said Carr, who noticed Keith was crying when he pulled away, and he said, What's wrong? He said, no, no, no. You suddenly realize who your friends are. Moon didn't elaborate, and Carr admitted that the drummer looked, was it, shagged out? Shagged out, yeah. Shagged out, and like a caricature of himself. Inside the cinema, Keith seemed agitated and insisted that they leave an hour into the movie. He was restless, said Annette. He didn't want to sit through this. Let's go. Back at their flat at 12 Curzon Place, Mayfair, Moon told Annette that he was hungry. She cooked him his favorite which was lamb's cutlets. And after they went to bed, after watching a video of the camp horror film, the indomitable Dr. Plebes. Fibes. Fibes. Yeah. And he went back to sleep. Annette crashed on the couch because Keith snored a lot. So I don't feel bad on the nights <laughs> that I go and crash out on the couch when fair. you're snoring like a maniac. At 3.40 p.m., she woke up and she, she said that she felt spooked. She said it was too quiet. Something was off. Something was wrong. She tried to wake up Keith, but I think we all know what happened. She phoned the doctor who phoned the ambulance. She tried giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth with no response. The ambulance came and tried to jolt his heart, but that didn't work either. Keith was dead at the age of 32. Oh, wow. The same age as John Bonham. Yeah. And Mama Cass, right? And Mama Cass, yeah. Yeah, we'll get a little but, bit more to Mama Cass in just a minute. But but there's, but there's a, a mix going on inside of him of this pill that was supposed to keep him from drinking which was a heavy sedative and then a big a big amount of cocaine it sounded like yeah and some and some alcohol based on this pill it sounds like it's a you know a lobotomy in a capsule basically well ba okay kind of. so, so what uh, i watched two documentaries on keith moon's life and basically what they said was that the heaven Ephron, i'm I'm, I'm gonna call it the hev um, because it's it's a very difficult name to say, but it was only supposed to be administered, according to these two documentaries, it was only supposed to be administered by a doctor at a hospital. Oh, wow. And then this doctor that had prescribed this for him actually gave him four bottles of it. So uh, what happened- Which is a great, which is a great thing to do to an addict. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah. he, they said that he had made him, what, what had maybe gone down was he took a couple, forgot that he took it, took some more. But what they found were post-mortem, there were 32 tablets in his system. Six of them, which were undissolved. So going back, she, the, he was actually, when, after she read, rang Dr. Diamond, who called the ambulance, when the ambulance got there, he had been dead for some time, but he was actually in, officially pronounced dead at 5.50 p.m. in the Middlesex Hospital. The WHO, they were told the news by the group's co-manager, and they were actually being interviewed at the time. And not a man prone to a lot of displays of emotion. Whistle actually continued with the interview until the interviewer asked him what the plans were for the future of the WHO, and he broke down. The official cause of death was certified as the Clomenzithal, oh God, I'm so sorry guys, I'm not a doctor, Heminevrin, overdose, self-administered, but no evidence of intention, open verdict. It was later revealed that he had the 26 undissolved tablets still in his stomach when he died. Him and Mama Cass have something in common in the weirdest of ways, and I kind of glazed over it before, but they died in the same apartment. It's creepy. Yeah, tremendously. Which was owned by Harry Nelson, but because he was on the road in the States, he actually rarely had a chance to be at his London home and instead rented out to just his musical friends. Cass Elliot, a.k.a. Mama Cass, a.k.a. someone we have to cover in the future because she is incredible. Uh, she was staying in London in 1974 following her solo two-week uh, sellout run of the Palladium and decided to stay in the English capital for a few days after her dates concluded on the 23rd. There's a lot of false speculation, and I know so many people have tried to set the record straight with this, but she did not die by choking on a ham sandwich. Just like the people, That's dumb. people in Jonestown did not die by drinking Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Flavor-Aid. Oh. And isn't there sort of a lofty conspiracy death theory surrounding Mama Cass? CIA and... Well, I don't want to go too deep into tinfoil hat land, but. Oh, no, I'll do that yeah. when I do the Mama Cass episode. <laughs> Fair enough. Because, yeah, I mean, it was, there's a whole section in the live version of the LPOT, the last podcast on the mm-hmm. left. Remember when all of a sudden she's, we're talking about Mama Cass during that, that live podcast and they bring her up and then they go through like a 15 minute conspiracy mm-hmm. theory about the CIA yep. based on her. Yes, we'll get there. But, you know. The sandwich did exist, but it was untouched on the table beside her when she was found the following day. I mean, can we just end this now? She did not die by choking on a ham sandwich. I hate people for that. So she passes away in 1974. And so here it is in 1978. And then Keith Moon, after an argument with his partner, basically overdoses on these pills. So that's just a weird, so so Keith Moon and Mama Cass dying in the same flat is just a weird piece of musical trivia that is just the saddest form of musical trivia. Mm-hmm. His funeral took place on Wednesday, September 13th at Golders Grain Crematorium. Eric Clapton, Charlie Watts, and Bill Wyman were among the 120 mourners that crammed that West Chapel. Flowers were sent by various Beatles, Stones, Zeppelin, Fleetwood, Mac, Bowie and the Moody Blues. Since Moon's death almost 40 years ago on the 7th of September 1978, the rest of the Who have gone to become increasingly protective of their friend. 
Townsend and Daughtry have both gone out of their way to present a different kind of moon, the one who didn't just play the fool. When I think of him, and this is a quote, when I think of him not as a drummer or as a crazy man who indulged in stunts, but as someone who I admired and truly enjoyed being with, whose small foibles all seemed attractive and engaging to me, said Townsend recently. He was, above all things, very funny with a great memory for gags and finding a way to bring them into everyday conversation. But he was also earnest and imaginative, and it was very rare that I was bored being in his company. Sitting opposite him at the table, one would watch him take a toothpick and pick absentmindedly without any reason at his front teeth. <laughs> he always kept his mouth closed when he did this. His almost black eyes would look into the distance, and his mouth would pout. And then, in one of his most characteristic mannerisms, he would swing the pout to one side as though he were using it as a rudder. It would be <laughs> a symbol. That faraway look would disappear, and he would just return to the room and, in the early days, come up with some joke or secondhand story that he thought would amuse. In later days, it might be the signal for him to demand money without saying why, and generally, I would just give it to him. Moon's drumming has been praised by critics. Author Nick Kavinsky described him as the greatest drummer in rock and roll, adding that he was to the drums what Hendrix was to the guitar. Yeah. Holly George Warren, editor and author of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the first 25 years. With the death of Keith Moon in 1978, Rock arguably lost its single greatest drummer. According to Edder, Moon, with his manic lunatic side and his life of excess drinking, partying, and other indulgence, probably represented the youthful, zany side of rock and roll, as well as the self-indulgent, destructive side better than anyone else on the planet. The new book of Rock ranked Moon number one. Damn. On its list of 50 greatest rock and roll drummers. And he was ranked number two on the 2011 Rolling Stones Best Drummers of All Time Reader Poll. In 2016, the same magazine ranked him number two on their list of 100 greatest drummers of all time behind John Bottom. Mm. Adam Blavatsky, editor of Drummers Magazine, said that, uh, editor of Drummer Magazine, said that Moon's performance on the Who Next and Quadrophena represents a perfect balance of technique and passion and there has been no drummer who has touched this unique slant on rock and rhythm since several rock drummers including neil peart Yay. and dave grohl have cited moon as their influence the jam paid homage to moon on their second single from their third album down in the tube station at midnight the b-side of their single is a who's cover so sad about us and the back cover of the record has a photo of moon's face the jam single was released at about a month after moon's death an animal, <laughs> one of Jim Henson's Muppets, may have been based on Keith Moon due to their similar hair, eyebrows, personality, and drumming style. Jazz drummer Elvis Moon praised Moon's work during the Underture as an integral to the song's effect. Ray Davies notably lauded Moon's drumming during the speech for the Kinks' introduction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. Keith Moon changed the sound of drumming. God bless his heart, Ozzy Osbourne told Sounds a month after the drummer's death. People will be talking about Keith Moon until they die, man. Mm -hmm. Clem Burke of Blondie has said, Early on, all I cared about was Keith Moon and the Who. When I was 11 or 12, my favorite part of my drum lesson was the last 10 minutes. When I'd get to sit at the drum set alongside my favorite record, I'd bring in my generation. And at the end of the song, I'd just go nuts on the drums. My generation was a turning point for me. Because before that, all there was was Charlie Watts and a Ringo type of thing. <laughs> in 1988... In Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. no. In 1998, Tony Fletcher published a biography of Moon, Dear Boy, The Life of Keith Moon in the United Kingdom. 
The phrase dear boy became a catchphrase of Moon's when influenced by Kit Lambert, he began to affect a pompous English accent. In 2000, the book was released in the U.S. as Moon, The Life and Death of a Rock Legend. And this is the book that I was talking about. I, I, I tried to read it. Oh, God, I tried so hard. But it is fancy words. Q Magazine called the book horrific and terrific reading. Mm-hmm. And Rock Collector said it was one of the greatest rock biographies. And with that, I end this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in doing the research for what is now the conclusion of Drummer's Month, isn't it? This is it. This is uh, the end. I-, I viewed so many drumming polls, and I don't think I ever saw Keith Moon below fifth of all time, ever. I, and I feel such a kinship with Keith Moon because, you know, you, you, Mr. Hickey, didn't know me growing up. Well, this is true. You knew me as a, a more responsible adult. TJ the Deuce, on the other hand, knew me <laughs> as a child. And I think that you can agree that uh, Keith Moon is a, a good representation of who I was growing up. Your spirit animal, yes. Very yeah. nice. I think, like I said last week, we all kind of pick the drummers that sort of reflect who we were as people. Yeah. Because Will is clearly the smartest of all three of us and the most well-spoken. Yes? Well, I... <laughs> I, uh... I'm, I'll just say I'm happy with my pick. I'll leave it at that. Woo, I love my pick. Yeah, I think we're all happy with our respective. Mr. Peart, yes, yes, yeah, no. And, uh, and TJ, uh, I'm pretty sure you have pooped in someone's shoe before. I don't see that as being any of your business. <laughs> I would say check out the uh, the Nike before you slide it on, but I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, I, I don't see how that's your business. I think he's talking to you, honey. I don't I wear Nikes. He's talking to you. I don't wear Nikes. Did you did you poop in my husband's shoe? <laughs> well, y'all, you y'all are in Los Angeles, and I'm in Packlet Ass, South Carolina, so that would actually be pretty difficult. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. My, be aim, would have, I my would, aim would have to be immaculate. I, I would have to call and congratulate you if you actually pulled that off. Right, but, I was going to say. I, I think pretty much he would just have to give me a hat tip. Yeah, I, I have just, no. Just, he would just have to salute salute the effort if I was able to pull that off somehow. But it's so interesting if you look at the commentary that they provided with us of how you know you had this sort of era of drummers and they point to Charlie Watts and, and Ringo Starr as kind of the keep in the beat. If you look at the drummers we've covered, you know, Peart, Bonham and Moon, these guys have totally went away from that. They were like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. You know? yeah, we, we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not going to, we're not going to settle for just uh, blending into the background. Right. Yeah. And it became their own voice in the bands that they, they were in. They consequently, they're probably the three most loved drummers I can think of. Yeah, a few people. I, I, look, I, I think I'll, I'll I'll sit here and argue for Charlie Watts being a great drummer all day long. Oh, for he, sure. He's fan, he's fantastic. Every every cool uh, groove that has ever been set in a Rolling Stone song, that's Charlie. So the, you you can't. There's no way you could ever. Oh yeah, and the drumming on Honky Tonk Woman is so oh, good. There's, there's no way you can downgrade anything he's ever done. But I'm just gonna say, who do you want to be like if you're a drummer? You don't want to be guy that guy that anonymously sets the bed. You want to be Keith Moon or John Bonham or Neil Peart. That those are the three guys, pretty much. I want to be Keith Moon. <laughs> and the thing, the only thing with with Moon, you, as, as we've now that I've had time to kind of soak in what you've shared with us over you know two episodes of this, immensely talented, obviously, very different, obviously, because he's not. It was never his intention to just, um, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, uh, just try to play with John here, and we'll just, we'll just set the groove and let 
you know, Pete and, and Daughtry shine. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really loud. And I'm going to be up at the front and I'm going to play everywhere, but where John is playing when mm-hmm. I can do it. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's how it's, how I'm going to roll. And it's, that's, it's obviously extremely different than almost anybody else has ever done it. And I will say like, it's, but, really but, but I'm going to tell you as, as much as I enjoyed a lot of the antics that you dug up and shared with us blowing up, it's universally funny if you flush lit dynamite down a shitter. I don't care what anybody <laughs> says. That's hilarious. That's incredibly funny, and I loved it. But there's a lot of stuff that you shared with us about him that's not funny. It's disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's a mix of sad and disturbing. Some of the things are not – it's not the, 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 the wacky – uh, antics that you think about with him and Bonham. A lot of that stuff was really dark. I, I, the guy, the guy had problems. He had, he had legitimate real issues. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the thing is I tried to do a mix of music and antics. And the thing is a lot of times people, unless they're in the, the music community will go, Oh yeah. He was the one that blew up toilets. Well, yeah, he was also the one that did a driving line on Bob O'Reilly. Like, people tend to lean toward his antics more than his music. Well, and and you you want to go? No, no, no. He was he was an incredible drummer. He was an incredible drummer. But but I'm not. I don't. I don't necessarily mean the dichotomy between antics and music. I'm talking about the dichotomy between wacky fun antics that make you laugh. And sending people to try to beat up or kill a guy that's dating his ex-wife. I'm talking about you. You said broke his broke his wife's nose on three occasions and tried to cut down a bathroom door with a freaking knife that where oh, she yeah. was had locked herself in to, to to protect herself from him. Yeah, that's not funny. There's nothing yeah. funny about that. I, I mean that that, that that's and, and it started so early. A lot of these things that you were talking about, it, it's almost like it was ingrained in him. Like he legitimately had had problems, real problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, trouble. That he's the classic troubled artist type. Yeah, and I'm, this is, I think, the first one where we've talked about where an artist, be it an accident, I, I, I we know it wasn't intentional, but he is the first artist that has been involved in someone else's death. Yeah, I think that's the first time. Yeah, but, you know, and it's scary that he he put himself into that situation because if I walk into a bar and there are skinheads, I'm going to walk out of that bar. I'm probably just going to leave. Yeah. yeah, I'll find somewhere else to drink. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, and 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 that haunted him the rest of his life. Yeah. So you know, but I mean, they're they're just when when you 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 look at, it's almost like some of the silly antics are, are a way of dealing with some of the very real strife he was dealing with internally yeah um, okay no no i was just gonna say because uh, you know much much as i love his music and as innovative as he was and as different as he was and as funny as it is to you know flush cherry bombs and dynamite down a commode <laughs> and, and to drive a car into a pool i i it's kind of hard for me to get it to, to summon much sympathy or, or respect for somebody who beat his wife up i i can't i'm, I'm I, that's that's a hard i'd say i wasn't aware of that before we started doing this and that's and that that was the that's thing not, that's not that's not it, it that that as a as a as a person that that diminishes my respect 
for him. And that's that's the honestly thing that I want to with this podcast, work and all. It's not going to be glossy. I know we're almost eighty or ninety episodes in, but it's not going to always be like glitz, glamour, and gloss. There are dark sides to people, and there are things that people deal with that, and I'm not going to go and dig up something that is conjecture. You know, these come from other people in the fact check, but that's, documented. But I'll say, but you, you have enough sources for, for that kind of stuff that, you know, you shared it. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't have any doubt that it's true. And it's that, I mean, I just, I mean, just being honest as we kind of look back over four ish hours of, of talking about Keith Moon, that that does, that does impact the way I think of him as a person a little bit. Not, not yeah. in a good way. Not, and not then, in a good way at then, all. And then at that point, do we have this conversation where do can you separate the art from the artist? And that's a question that you have to ask yourself. Sure, that you def well, yeah, you certainly can. You can respect what what he produced, and 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 I'm I never excuse some of the things that you let out for anything. But yeah. it, it sounds, but it does sound like this stuff started so early and it was so pervasive. I mean, it, it just, it sounds like this is, he was a person who was out of control and maybe this is just, he had issues that pushed him in some of the directions that he went, maybe. And I also not, not, not to play amateur psychiatrist or anything, but. Yeah, and, and, and please understand, guys, that this is our personal opinion. So, you know, I, again, this is a great opportunity to open up for you guys to talk to us about your views on this, please. Um, I'm going to give out our socials right now, and I, I would love to hear other people's sides of the story. Please engage with us on our Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook page. Uh, you can email us. So uh, if you would like to donate to our Patreon, which we're going to be making some drastic changes to, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can find us on Instagram at rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. <laughs> And you can email us, which I encourage you guys to do, at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please do check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at rockandrollarchaeology.com. If you have something nice to say, address it to LD. If you want to complain or bitch about it, uh, just send it to me. Because <laughs> I don't, because because as she said in the last episode, she's a, a little bit of a sensitive soul, and she doesn't uh, want to deal with that. I, I get I get it as part of my job, so I don't really care. If you have some, if you have something horrible to say, just say, "Dear TJ." <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're the one of the two of us that have gotten more death threats than anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I don't know how many you've had. I've had a couple. <laughs> I've had none. So yeah. it's usually more, it's usually more, I'm going to whip your ass than it is. I'm, uh, I'm going to kill you. The threats of violence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I haven't had any threats of violence yet. And I'd prefer to keep it that way. That'd be, that'd be really good. Just give, give him, given my profession choice, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more accustomed to uh, angry people telling me I suck than you are. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there, if they, if they have something terrible to say, just address it to TJ. If it's, if it's <laughs> praise, you can make it out to LD or Will. Okay, I like that That's idea. Fair so, mm -hmm. so just to end this episode, I want to say, yes, Keith Moon was a very troubled person, but the fact was he was widely considered as one of the best drummers of all time. He might have led a manic life, but the fact was that it was reflected in his music, which gave us some of the greatest music 
from the seven, the sixties and the seventies. Uh, it set me certainly on a path to my musical journey. And this is one of my favorite bands of all time. And so I have- And they're, and they're inarguably one of the greatest bands of all time. I, I don't think anybody can, sure. yeah. could, could, could argue anything other than that. Yeah, so to say goodnight to our sweet prince, Keith Moon, <laughs> here is from the album, a quick one from 1966. This is Cobwebs and Strange. Bye. 